Hi, welcome to Bits of Berlin. I'm Tam. And I'm Bodo. This is our 10th episode of Bits of Berlin. We're really excited and thank you to everyone who's come along on this journey with us. And in this episode, we talked with Sascha Capitola. He's a research assistant at the Chair of Space Technology at the TU Berlin. He's working on the development of CubeSats. CubeSats are small satellites, not bigger than 10 by 10 centimeters. And the TU currently has four of them in Earth orbit. They're called BSAT 1 through 4. Yeah, so my name is Sascha Capitola. I'm working at, as a research assistant at the Chair of Space Technology here at Technische Universität Berlin. The Chair of Space Technology is located uh, or organized within the Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. I'm actually a software developer in the, or I started as a software developer in the BZ4 project as a student and then I got a job as a research assistant and teaching assistant and so beside the operations of BZ4, the further development of, of BZ4, I teach courses like uh, spacecraft operations or mission planning and there are always many other tasks to do uh, but always very very interesting tasks in the field of space technology. Yeah. First off maybe what is a satellite? Yeah, so a satellite is actually an artificial object which is orbiting the Earth in contrast to space probes uh, which are actually going into deep space which is they are leaving Earth and go for other planets or deep space missions. So satellites are objects we send to Earth's orbit to do Earth observation, that is, um, we'd like to monitor changes regarding the climate or weather. We'd like to monitor fires, that is also part of Earth observations, and many more fields of Earth observations are thinkable. Satellites are also used for, for communications, and in recent years, Satellites are also used for education. One university in the USA founded an, a standard, which is called the CubeSat standard, and it describes uh, one U CubeSat as a cube, which has the length, uh, one length is 10 centimeters. Yeah, and the BZ4 is one of such a CubeSat, actually a one U CubeSat, and it is already the fourth in the series of the BZ series which is we started in 2009 with the launch of BZ-1 and we went on to with, with BZ-2 and the main missions of uh, both of the spacecrafts are to demonstrate how to stabilize the spacecraft regarding the attitude because you need to know if you uh, separate an, an object from the rocket, those objects aka satellites, uh, they, thumb, uh, they tumble in, within the orbit. They don't have yeah, something to hold on because there is uh, yeah, no gravity. If you send a satellite to space, you need to think about how to stabilize it. And we do it uh, with the help of small reaction wheels, which are masses which rotate at high speeds, like, let's say, 5,000 uh, rounds per minute. With the help of those reaction wheels, you can control the attitude of the spacecraft or the tumbling. You can, uh, you, you can damp the satellite or you, you can uh, hold on if you want to. Yeah, and then um, you are able to uh, point, for example, cameras to Earth or to any other point of view you want to have to. Yeah. Base, basing on 
the experiences we made in the BZ1 mission and the BZ2 mission, we uh, we started the BZ4 mission for uh, where we have a GPS receiver uh, on board the spacecraft, and that is again something we have in the those components and those small components we'd like to place on uh, spacecrafts like a one U CubeSat. It's quite difficult to operate those. Uh, difficult is not the right word, but it's uh, some kind of challenging mm. uh, to to operate those payloads on a small uh, satellite like a one U CubeSat, and that is uh, actually the the mission we do with BZ4. So, are all four of these satellites currently orbiting Earth, or just the BZ4? No, uh, actually, all four BZs are still orbiting Earth. You can even uh, visit a website where you can see all those uh, spacecraft for ex- Yeah, I don't want to uh, advertise the special No, website. please save yeah. it. Yeah. So um, we, we have um, Heavens Above, for example, heavens-above.com. Uh, uh, there you can uh, choose your location where you are and can choose an object. BZ-1 is actually only called BZ, not the one. Um, and there are additionally other programs like GPredict we use for past predictions or one uh, uh, anybody can can download those software from the internet and can choose the objects uh, which he or she is interested in and then you can see where they are and so you already saw those screens today you could see that those uh, satellites are orbiting earth uh, and do one uh, turn around uh, within 90 minutes or something like that 92 to 95 minutes mm-hmm. So, yeah, they are still active. Even the BZ-1 is still active. And that is quite successful if you remember that this is in orbit for seven years now. So, yeah, we are lucky to have that spacecraft uh, still orbiting Earth and still active there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long do they generally stay in orbit for? Or how do you get them down? Is there a plan for getting them back? Or do how does that work? Uh, no, actually, uh, we don't have plans to get them back. But uh, if you launch a satellite uh, in any size uh, to to a low Earth orbit in, let's say, 500 uh, kilometers, you need to get it down. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, you need to get it down within 25 years after uh, the completion of the mission. Is that a, a law? From that that is some kind. Uh, it is called code of conduct, and it is an uh, yeah international international agreement, and you have to stick to it if you want to launch those uh, such kind of, of spacecraft. So how do they get down then? So it's yeah. actually just physics. You you have um, atmosphere up there. Well, this is the way we do it, and I think most other especially CubeSat operators also do it this way. Uh, they just rely on physics. That is, you have some molecules up there, which is uh, a little bit of atmosphere, and there's still friction um, between atmosphere and the spacecraft. And that is why those small CubeSats still uh, lose height within a large amount of time. And so they deorbit in a let's say, five years period, which is the case for, for BZ4. Uh, BZ2 was launched in 2013. Uh, I think since 2013, he will still have 10 years, I think. Mm. Um, but that's just uh, uh, that's not simulated or calculated, just a thought that it is that much. Yeah, uh, BZ1 is, um, was launched prior to the agreement, uh, this international agreement and it will still be up there if we are all not 
on Earth anymore. And, uh, mm -hmm. Still, the next generations will will may recognize it deorbiting. <laughs> But deorbiting just means it falls. It falls, right? falls down. Yeah. But but there are uh, um, uh, very important other technologies to deorbit the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. It is still a very very important research topic because you may have already heard about uh, space space debris. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very challenging task to keep the space around Earth clean. Yeah, uh, I always, I always mention the movie uh, Volley. Maybe you have seen yeah. it. Yeah. There is one scene where where the rocket starts with Volley at uh, holding on at the rocket, and you see the this rocket is um, going through a mass of spacecraft, a mass of satellites. Yeah, and. Of course, it's some kind of fiction, but it may describe uh, uh, that there is that we have launched uh, already many, many orbits into uh, many, many objects into the orbit since uh, the first Sputnik uh, from Russia, and it is an important topic to to work on to. Yeah, to think about how do we get them to deorbit. There are many experiments going on, but. It's not only a matter of deorbiting a spacecraft, but also to prevent uh, making uh, or uh, placing rubbish into Earth. That is, we also have an, a big project going on, which is called IBOS, and it's dealing with uh, the modular satellite. So the main idea is to exchange malfunctioned parts of, of a spacecraft. So, and you have like like Lego. Yeah. You you have blocks of which the spacecraft consists, and then you can just exchange those uh, defect blocks, and then you can keep up a spacecraft which may have just one subsystem uh, failing, and you don't lose the whole spacecraft. That is one idea to uh, prevent space debris. Uh, but, uh, but at the moment, uh, we focus on, or I think many many institutions focus on how to deorbit a spacecraft. But once it um, comes back to Earth, then does it sort of fall apart as it comes back to Earth? Or does no. someone then go pick it up? Or no, 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 no. Why no. <laughs> abandoned somewhere? <laughs> That would be uh, very, very dangerous because it's unpredictable sure. where, where such a spacecraft can yeah. hit Earth. Yeah. Uh, the Earth friction or the friction of the atmosphere mm -hmm. gets, uh, gets stronger and stronger and finally the spacecraft is burning off uh, ah, bur okay. burning up yeah. but that is true of course for small objects you may remember that the russians uh, deorbited mir um, yeah. i think at the beginning of the 2000s there were parts which fell down into the pacific ocean or atlantic i don't remember anymore that uh, that concrete but um, yeah it's actually there are cases where Any kind of objects, even those from rockets which are launching into space, uh, they fall back on Earth or uh, they don't burn up in the atmosphere. And that is actually very dangerous. So we've talked about how they come down. Yeah. How, how do you send them up into orbit? Yeah, yeah. I think many institutions use the so-called piggyback launch uh, of many uh, launch providers, which is we have, uh, for example, the... Russians, which provides launch with the Soyuz rocket, or the Indians with their PSLVs, which is Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle. The, the Americans have their, have their Atlas rocket. They are working uh, on Falcon rockets. Uh, just to name a few, and uh, for the Euro uh, European 
institutions we have those uh, Ariane rocket which is uh, launching from French Guiana in Southern America and there you can actually buy the opportunity to launch with a much much bigger spacecraft which is of course a rocket launch will cost you many million of dollars or euros or yep. whatever and of course we as a university we can't pay it and actually just to start a, a satellite which is of a size of a cube uh, of a small cube that is not uh, that that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to to just launch one rocket therefore and so uh, we just buy a piggyback launch when one big mission is launching and yeah we can decide uh, which orbit we we will uh, want to go to and then yeah we contact those launch providers and it is a very very long process to get such opportunity and Yeah, another opportunity to start a satellite is to uh, get separated from the ISS, from the International Space Station. Mm. Um, they have uh, CubeSat launchers as well. That is, um, they get up when astronauts are going to to um, the space station, or you have those supply missions. Um, Soyuz, or better to say Progress, uh, is the name of the spacecraft, which yep. don't have any persons aboard, but just have goods, um, food, new experiments, which is just a cargo mission. Yeah? Yep. And there are different vehicles which can do that. And of course, this is the way they get into the Earth orbit, but separated they get from the, from the ISS. That is, there's an astronaut getting the satellite out of some kind of box and putting it into the deployer mm -hmm. and then uh, he yeah he starts uh, the the deployment and then they can even uh, record uh, a movie of getting the spacecraft uh, deployed from the ISS that is some kind of interesting because when you start with the with the rocket you don't have any pictures of how your satellite yeah. gets separated yeah, yeah. Another important topic when talking about getting spacecraft into orbit, there are always some kind of separation mechanisms which are now standards for CubeSat missions. And that is the reason why they are so uh, cheap in contrast to much, much bigger missions. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, standard parts which can be mounted on, on a rocket And so it is uh, yeah, quite inexpensive for, for launch providers to just put some of those containers um, onto, onto the rocket, put the spacecraft uh, into, or the CubeSats into that, into that um, separators or uh, uh, deployers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then they just uh, launch the rocket. First of all, uh, the main, uh, the primary object, the primary satellite is uh, deployed. In our case, when we started BZ4, it was a Katusat mission. That was the name of the spacecraft the Indians uh, uh, launched. So it it is very important to deploy this payload uh, safely because mm -hmm. it's very very expensive. If something uh, if something is going on, then they even uh, change the height. Maybe they uh, will raise the orbit of the rocket or even lower it a bit, and then they deploy all other secondary payloads. Mm -hmm. That is the way how they get into orbit. So how many CubeSats are in orbit now? When oh, uh, I need to ask my colleague. <laughs> he has, uh, he has uh, made studies on that. Uh, very, very many CubeSats. Uh, there are even CubeSats which are only in orbit for 
two to six months or even like that. They are uh, designed for that mission lifetime. For example, when you get uh, separated from ISS, you don't have enough height to stay in orbit much longer. But how how many, I think it would be a few thousand. But wow. that is, uh, I don't know exactly. And can anyone just build one, buy cargo space and then fly it up? How does that work? Actually, yes, if you have the money. What is not so easy is to deploy it or to ship it to the countries where the sp spacecraft is launched. Beside all the development of the, sp of the satellite itself, uh, you need to all those institutions which are shipping those uh, um, equipment uh, to, to other countries and that is not that easy. But actually, you don't need much paperwork to do when you launch the satellite for yourself. Of course, you need to prove the safety of the spacecraft for, for the launch provider, just that they can be sure that their rocket don't will blow up just because of your spacecraft. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, borders and customs is a much... <laughs> I think it's a much trickier process just from my point of view. <laughs> yeah. So I can put it anywhere I want? Uh, actually not, because you are you depend on the launch opportunity you have. Yeah. That is, you can't go in any height you want to, because you don't uh, get the launch opportunity, as yeah. I said. And you need to make up your mind uh, how long the, the satellite will stay in orbit. That is, uh, if you will have the opportunity to get in an orbit which is 1,000 kilometers high, and you will know, oh, my my satellite, my small satellite will will stay up there for... 100 years or something yeah. like that, then you are not allowed to bring it into orbit this way. Then you need to uh, develop the orbit mechanisms, for example. So you are not allowed to um, uh, hurt the code of conduct for in this case. So that would be my, uh, my view for this topic. But uh, yeah, launch opportunities and, and the orbit. Yeah. I think that is the most important fact that you are not free in choosing the orbit height and the inclination, yeah. for example. So the BZAP-4 right now, the main research goal of it is um, to test stabilization? Or is it doing anything else while it's up there? Uh, well, it actually is up there because uh, it should operate a payload based on the stabilization of the spacecraft, okay. which was uh, worked on in the BZAP-2 mission. So just to... Um, Revised that in the BZ-1 mission, we tested the, those small reaction wheels. and BZ-2, we showed that we can use it to stabilize the spacecraft. And finally, the BZ-4 mission will demonstrate that we can operate a payload uh, on a platform like a one u CubeSat, especially on a stabilized platform. And that is, um, we will do precise orbit and position determination within the orbit Uh, with the help of a GPS receiver. And that is actually the main payload and main mission goal. Secondary, uh, secondary mission goals are, again, um, education of students. That is a very important aspect of CubeSat development, I think. And it's the same for me, I think. I, I learned a lot while developing a CubeSat. I, uh, I didn't only uh, invented or developed software, but of course I was in, uh, was involved in the whole qualification and testing process, which is to ensure that the spacecraft will work within the orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, in this process, I learned very much about uh, all those space-related topics. How do you um, test that it will work in orbit? Because we're here on Earth. What so how do you sort of build the environment to make sure that 
it's going to be okay yeah. up there. Very important tests are some kind of uh, radiation tests. Also we call it environment testing. Is, uh, cons will consist of um, radiation tests, uh, especially for all electronical components because uh, as we as humans, we, we can get hurt by radiation we have up there. Mm -hmm. uh, here on Earth, we are... Uh, protected by the atmosphere you won't be protected uh, in orbit and that is the, the same for spacecrafts you uh, need to protect it or need to ensure that they don't get damaged by radiation very important is a vibration test because yeah you won't have vibrations in the orbit but uh, while the spacecraft is launching it is uh, departing earth you have very very high vibrations uh, the spacecraft uh, will be shaked uh, while it is launched mm -hmm. so a vibration test on uh, different levels are uh, conducted prior launch to ensure that all the mechanical units and the hardware won't be damaged and another part again uh, one of my topics as a software developer are software tests to ensure that the uh, software system of the spacecraft is working correctly and mm -hmm. as a part of this there's another environmental test for example, magnetic coils to produce a precise magnetic field as we have in the Earth orbit to maybe uh, conduct experiments uh, with the help of that. That are actually the environmental testing we are doing here. Especially for software systems, we try to conduct tests very, very often as it is the same for any other software you have, for example, in your mobile phones or in any other application you will test it as often as possible. That is uh, that is the same for the spacecraft systems. And those environmental tests, you will have maybe once or twice for one mission. Uh, there are different levels. That is uh, qualification and acceptance testing. And yeah, the qualification is very important if you invent a new space system and to check whether it will... Yeah, resist all those uh, environmental influences. How big is the team that um, works on sending one CubeSat up into orbit? That actually depends on how big the spacecraft is. Uh -huh. um, within the BZ-4 mission, we only had at the busiest times, I think, three to four um, research assistants mm, okay. within... Other missions, like the Technosat mission, is, uh, is a nanosatellite of the size of uh, 30 kilograms. And that's half of a washing machine, I would say, uh, that is the size. There we have, um, I don't know the exact number, but I would say 10 to 15 people. Mm. And, of course, all working in different fields of the development of the spacecraft so you have the development of all the mechanical parts and the structure you of course have people working on the software systems you will have people working on operational scenarios and mission planning and uh, testing and so on yeah so that are the fields people can work in within a space mission can you talk a little bit about um your future projects so the upcoming um, satellites that you're going to be launching the upcoming uh, satellites the the next satellite we launch is the technosat mission uh, as i said 20 kilograms it will be launched in summer 2017 
It is actually a predecessor mission for the Tubin satellite, which is planned to be launched in 2018, and it will carry an infrared camera. That is, you can detect thermal hotspots on Earth. That is uh, done, for example, for fire detection, a very, very important topic when you have those forest, those wild uh, fires, uh, where it is very hard to detect where is the center of fire and how to uh, fight those fires. Until now, uh, you always have much bigger spacecrafts to do those missions, and we will show with the Technosat mission uh, how to do that on a small spacecraft. And there are many other experiments going on. Uh, we have uh, new communication technology support to to downstream data much uh, faster than uh, on on other spacecraft like the Bezat series. We have uh, new technology for attitude stabilization. That is, we have a fluid dynamic actuator, which is we stabilize the spacecraft not with the help of a reaction wheel, like uh, rotating a mass, but we want to rotate fluid uh, within the spacecraft. And yeah, that is a big research topic going on, and the Technosat mission is the first from our institution which is uh, carrying such a payload. Another mission is the SNET mission. Uh, it consists of four nanosatellites, each uh, eight kilograms, and... That is a communication experiment, a, a pure communication experiment. They will show how to do communication between a constellation of satellites in the so-called S-band. It's a defined frequency band where communication can uh, be, be on. And yeah, there we will uh, have four satellites in a formation flight. And... I already spoke about the IBOS mission. It's a big project which is not only worked on at our institutions but uh, other institutions in Germany as well. It's uh, about having building blocks for a satellite and there are many key questions to answer like um, how to attach all those blocks together, um, how to transfer energy, data and maybe even fuel between those blocks and all that will happen within orbit. And it is not that easy. So just this question um, took a lot of uh, research time. But of course, the software systems of such, a, of such kind of dynamic uh, hardware system is also a big question. Yeah. How, to, how to have uh, different applications uh, running on those kind of satellites. Uh, but it's a very, very big topic. And we will have... We are actually working now on the first demonstrators for those kinds of missions, and they may even be get into orbit in the next years. Um, we also have projects going on which are developing satellites which are smaller than the BSATs, which okay. is smaller than 1U CubeSats. You just need to imagine uh, a 1U CubeSat, so a cube of 10 centimeters, and then you slice it into four pieces. Like bread, for yeah. example. Yeah? Other topics, other research topics, we even have more, uh, include developing payloads like uh, new communication transceivers uh, in different frequency bands, in the X-band, for example, to put those uh, payloads onto spacecrafts in the future. Um, one thing that we 
haven't talked about yet is how you um, communicate. I don't think yeah. we've talked about it. How you communicate with the satellites that yeah. are up yeah. in orbit. You took us up on Saruf and showed us the big satellite dish that was yeah. up there. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit how that works? Yeah, that's a good question at this time because I'm uh, looking at our screen and I see that the BISA-2 satellite is just passing over Berlin now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and so that would be an opportunity to contact the satellite. That is, you talked about the dish we have uh, yeah. at the, on the roof. Um, you can... Uh, move it in in the uh, azimut angle and in the elevation angle to point at any point uh, in the in the sky, and then you can send uh, f- communication signals mm-hmm. into Earth orbit. And what we have up there is a dish in the so-called S-band frequency band. Uh, we don't use that for the BZ spacecrafts. We uh, for for BZ we use ultra high frequency. Um, frequency bands and amateur bands that is um, 436 megahertz roundabout and we we use so-called yagi antennas maybe you just saw those um, in earlier days uh, where we have all those antennas on top of each roof to receive the tv signals yeah mm-hmm. and yeah, that is even the technology we use to send dig- digital signals to the spacecraft that is we um, the bizats uh, only answer when they are requested to transmit any kind of signal. That is, uh, we send a send a short telecommand and then it answers with telemetry. And those telemetry telemetry frames are very short. That is only half of a kilobyte. And within this transmission frame, we have any kind of health data. We call it housekeeping data. It consists of the voltage of the batteries, the incoming current from the solar cells, uh, the status of the onboard computer, like its uh, like its mode or the memory it has left to store telemetry we can't download for the moment. And we even transmit um, images over this kind of frequency band, but that is only the reason we don't have any other antennas aboard BZ or any other transceivers. But I guess you can only communicate it then when it's over... Berlin, or can you ask other people around the world also to try to communicate with it if they have a satellite dish on their roof and the right technology? Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's even possible. Uh, as I told, uh, we communicate in radio amateur frequency bands. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, the signals Visa transmits can can be received by any radio amateur who has an uh, amateur uh, such an UHF antenna. Mm-hmm. So. We only have this ground station here in Berlin to actively command the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, an antenna in Spitzbergen, uh, which is um, near the North Pole, yeah. uh, which is very, very interesting to have much more passes in specific orbits like BZ-4 has. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so-called the sun-synchronous orbit, and the, it always passes over both uh, the North Pole and the South Pole in each turnaround of Earth. Um, so commanding the spacecraft is only possible uh, for us at the moment. It's only possible for us over Berlin for a period of about 10 to 12 minutes. And after that, we don't receive any signals from it. Uh, but we can yeah, we can command it actually to do some auto transmissions when we know we have radio amateurs. For example, in the USA or in Australia, we can command the spacecraft to turn on its, trans- its transmitters uh, over those places and they can catch up those signals. We already did that. 
And it's very interesting because um, we are even possible to receive the telemetry they uh, captured for us um, over the internet. Yep. There are actually protocols uh, developed for that case to forward those telemetry to, to our uh, institution here mm. in Berlin. Yeah. Do you communicate daily with them? Yeah, we, communi we communicate daily with them, especially the BZ-4 spacecraft is uh, commanded every day because we only have four opportunities at its maximum. Um, it depends on, on the orbit itself. And BZ-2, will you, you have uh, about six to eight opportunities uh, at each day, but those opportunities can even be uh, at midnight or something like that. So if we have the lucky situation and uh, we have those passes in the working time, of course, we are operating them. At the moment, we are conducting some kind of attitude experiments that is damping the spacecraft with the help of its magnetic coils and we try to improve the performance of those controllers uh, that is for example what we do not every day but what we do uh, yeah once in a month or something like that sometimes we we even uh, capture images and use the passes to download those images yeah is it constantly does it take images on its own on a regular um, time schedule or do you have to tell it please take a picture tomorrow or something yeah we we have to we have to tell it uh, that it okay. has uh, that it captures uh, the image yeah because the amount of data is just too much sure, for us yeah. to uh yeah to have many many pictures uh, aboard the spacecraft at the moment we are actually really doing that uh, on demand but there are plans to do it on a more regular basis and yeah we'd like to ask the radio amateur community uh, community to Yeah, to receive image uh, images or even parts of it because mm -hmm. we think that would be some kind of interesting uh, yeah experiment to collect this image data from all over the world yeah totally. that that are plans yep. to to be realized in the, in the future but actually the the technology is there we we don't have to develop it but we we need some kind of uh, operational tools to plan and organize this kind of uh, uh, operation mm -hmm. yeah do you have anything you want to add Yeah, uh, we just talked about many topics about sp uh, satellites and yeah. especially small satellites. That is uh, one big topic we are doing here. But one thing I'd just like to add is that we are also working on planetary rovers. At the moment, we are um, developing rovers which are used in competitions on Earth, not to send them into space. That would reason a much, much, much more bigger mission, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we are working here on the mechanical systems, the structures for a rover, that is the the chassis, the the wheels and something like that. We all invent them, uh, invent those parts here. And, of course, the software is always a big, big topic in, in every mission. Yeah, You can have the fancies, the hardware, which does nothing when you don't have the right software yeah. to work with. So those rovers are those planetary rovers are actually especially developed for autonomous uh, operations but also for competitions where you are allowed to command it uh, and and control it in any way you want but uh, then it's uh, even uh, um, requ required to do some or get some probes of uh, of um, Of the ground or something like that, just to accelerate the research activities here in Berlin, in in, in Germany, uh, there are some national competitions, but also uh, worldwide uh, competitions are conducted to just yeah get the 
research activities there accelerated for that topic. And it's even a good topic for teaching purposes. Mm -hmm. um, as the CubeSats are, we um, used the planetary rover. We called it SEER, the Small Exploration Assistant Rover, which was... Uh, yeah, the first or second rover from the Chair of Space Technology here in Berlin. Yeah, we used it or we invented it and developed it in, in uh, teaching courses here at the university. And that was really, really interesting where you were part of a team uh, inventing something new mm -hmm. and getting from yeah zero to hero, something yeah. like that. <laughs> I think that that was all from my side, yeah. Thank you so Thank much you. for talking to Thank us. you very much for visiting us here. <laughs> And now on to the events section. The first event we want to highlight is the Open Data Day. It's on the 4th of March at the Wikimedia Deutschland and they have an awesome schedule with interesting talks and enough time to play around with open data. Uh, the second event isn't really an event, but it's something you want to draw your attention to. The campaign for Rails Girls Summer of Code 2017 has opened. So if you want to donate to this awesome program, then you can head on over to railsgirlsummerofcode.org slash campaign. And if you want to know a little bit more about the Rails Girls Summer of Code, you can listen back to episode three, where we talked with some teams about their projects. And the last thing we want to highlight is also not an event, but an important date. It's the 31st of March, and that date is the deadline for the Prototype Fund. The Prototype Fund is organized by the Open Knowledge Foundation, and they collected 1.3 million euros from the German government and give it to open source projects. So if you have an open source project and think of getting funding for it, apply there. Yeah, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our podcast, make sure you uh, share it with your friends, either by retweeting us or sending them an email or just next time you see them, tell them that you think we're awesome and we would really appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.